Hey Globe Church, today's reading is from Romans 15 verse 1 to 13. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. For each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. And again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people, and again, Praise the Lord, you all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up. One will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, the last few months have been more challenging and more unsettling than anything I can remember in our generation. They've been months of unprecedented change for our world. And I think they've really hinged on two huge cultural moments that force us to confront things that otherwise would be hidden away. So the first cultural moment has exposed humans' fragility as we face the virus that we can't control and that has shut us down. And it's led to a huge amount of anxiety and fear. The second cultural moment has exposed the sinfulness of humanity, a deep-seated injustice that runs right through our society and even right through our hearts. So coronavirus and the murder of George Floyd are huge cultural moments and they confront us. They confront us with questions that we've got to engage with. And I think that's particularly true as we think about what it means to be a church. How should the church respond? Do you know, I think the tragedy is that I'm not sure we've done a brilliant job of responding as the church in this country. I'm not sure we've spoken as clearly and as boldly as we could have done. And so this afternoon, I, I want us to take th those two cultural moments, and I want us to take Romans chapter 15, the passage we've come to now, and I want to ask, what does it have to say? What does the church have to say? What is the church supposed to be about in a world of coronavirus and of racism? And what we're going to see is that the vision that Paul has of what the church is supposed to be is exactly what our world needs. 
It fits and matches so perfectly with what our world is craving for. You see, over the last few weeks, we've seen a whole bunch of stuff about what it means to be the church. We thought a few weeks ago about the fact that the church is a family. We're not a herd where we're all the same. We're a family made up of different people. And we're the people for whom Christ died, we saw last week. We're precious to him, and therefore we must not harm one another, but instead we should help each other, not put obstacles in one another's way, but encourage one another, build each other up. And that brings us to Romans chapter 15, where Paul is going to push this argument and and this description of the church even further. And he's going to help us to see how the church fits into God's overarching story of the Bible. You see, one of the reasons that we get kind of the church wrong and we think wrongly about the church is because it becomes disconnected from the overall story of what God is doing in the world. It's a bit like when, you know, when you're, you're watching a movie and you fall asleep and then suddenly you wake up and something's happening on the screen but you don't know what's going on and you, you irritate everyone around you by saying, who's she and why are they doing that? Well, what's happened is that scene has become disconnected from the overall story so you've not got a clue what that scene really means. And that can happen with the church. So we've got this thing called the church, but we've lost the big story, and so we're not really sure what the church is supposed to be. Well, let's let Romans 15 fill it in for us. Let's let Romans 15 paint a glorious vision of what the church is supposed to be for our world. Here's the way it works. Um, Romans chapter 15 it splits into two sections, these verses we've got. Verses 1 to 6 and then verses 7 to 13. And I've split it like that because each of those sections ends with a prayer. Twice in these 13 verses, Paul starts praying. Now Paul, the man who wrote Romans, when he starts praying, you know things are getting serious. Here he is writing his letter and then suddenly he starts to, to pray because he becomes overtaken by a passion and an ambition and a zeal for what he's writing. And these two prayers are going to give us an insight into Paul's heart. And through Paul, we're going to get an insight into the Holy Spirit's heart. What is God's ambition for his church? What are we supposed to be about? Let me just show you the two prayers, and then we'll see how these sections build up to it. The first prayer comes in verse 5 and 6. He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praying to God, saying that the church would love each other like Christ loved us. Why? So that with one mind and one voice we would glorify God. Here's the first vision we're going to see of what it means to be the church. We're to be a people of unified praise. A people with one voice who declare to our world that our God is glorious and that our God reigns. That's what the church is to be. Not all the same, but all speaking with one voice from every nation and tribe and tongue, from every background, every class, every place, united with one voice to declare God's praise. That's a vision to get excited about. 
And the second prayer then comes in verse 13, where Paul prays, you'll see it's got a very similar structure. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, he's asking the God of hope to fill them with joy and peace so that they would overflow with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this people of God who are to be united in praise are also to be a people who are overflowing with hope. That's the vision that God has for his world, for his church. That is how we are to be in this world. That is what our world needs the church to be. United in praise and overflowing with hope. But that hope overflows by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a human hope. This is a God-given hope. You want to see a church that's full of the Holy Spirit? You want to see a church where the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work it will be a church that overflows with hope. And that language of overflowing is such powerful language because it has the idea that there's no room for anything else. If you've got a glass of water and it's overflowing, you don't then say to someone, would you you like some ice in it or some squash? No, it's already overflowing. There is no room for anything else. And a church that is overflowing with hope, there is no room for other things. There's no room for fear and doubt. There's no room for cynicism and suspicion and anxiety. No, there's no room for that because we're overflowing with hope. And it will mean that we're a people of confidence and peace and joy. Not a people who are freaking out, but a people who are confident in God. And can I say that in a world of coronavirus, this world needs to see a church that's overflowing with hope so that they may know where true hope is found. And in a world ripped apart by division and injustice, our world needs to see a church that is united in praise where true inclusivity and true unity is seen. That's the vision. That's the purpose of the church in the world. That's what Paul is praying. And in fact, that's what Jesus is praying for his church. This is what matters. So let's come back now to um, the verses and work through them in detail and see, okay, how's that going to happen? How, are the, how is the church going to be united in praise and overflowing with hope? Verses 1 to 6, united in praise. Let's pick it up in verse 1, and this should be quite familiar language now, having seen this several times in this section of Romans. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here's how the church is to work. We're to bear with one another. There is an expectation that we will fail. There's an expectation that we will get it wrong. And on those days when we get it wrong, if we live to please ourselves, then we will destroy the church. Look, when when someone frustrates us or disappoints us, it brings us to a crossroads. And we have a choice to make. I want you to picture a crossroads in your mind. You have a choice to make. One option is that you walk down the 
please yourself road. That's the road that says, well, why should I have to put up with all this rubbish? Why should I be treated like this? I just want an easy life. I think that's how Goldilocks would approach church. You see, Goldilocks, I mean, she's not a great role model, is she? First of all, she breaks and enters into someone's house. And then there's three bowls of porridge in front of her. One is salty, one is too sweet, and one is just right. Ooh, this one's too salty, this one's too sweet, this one's just right. She wants the thing that pleases herself. You know, we can be like that. We can be like that within church. We walk into one church, this is too loud, this is too quiet, ooh, this one's just right. This one's too young, this one's too old, this one is just right. That's how Goldilocks would approach church. But this desire to please ourselves actually is a really very basic desire. And it makes unity impossible. If when I get to the crossroads, I choose please myself, I'm choosing not to be united with the church. And the danger is that all you end up with is salty churches, sweet churches, and bland churches in the middle, and we all just go to the one that we feel comfortable with. I'm a salty one, I'm a sweet one. This one's just right for me. And that's as old as humanity itself. Do you know, the very first sin that human beings committed, when, when the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, took the fruit that they'd been told not to eat, the reason we're told they took the fruit was because it was pleasing to the eye. They looked at it and they thought, that looks just right for us. And so they ate. They got to the crossroads and they chose, please myself. Interesting, when you get to the book of Judges, um, later on in the Bible, there's this really interesting phrase, when there was no king, all the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. They all chose whatever pleased them. And it led to chaos, disaster in the land. If I'm living to please myself, then I will never bear with you when you annoy me or irritate me. But the other road at this crossroads is far harder. It's the option that says, rather than please myself, I will please my neighbor. That's what Paul talks about in verse 2. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. When Paul talks about neighbor, I think he's still talking about within the church. Anyone within the church. You live to please them. It doesn't mean in a kind of keep them happy, man-pleasing sort of way. He means you choose to do the thing that will do them good, to build them up. And when that happens, the salty people and the sweet people look to do good to one another. And rather than divide and, and set up their own churches, instead they come together and you have a church that is both sweet and salty. And if you've ever tasted sweet and salty popcorn, you'll know it's genius. But more seriously, the trouble is that is costly. It means not pleasing myself, which presumably means making decisions that are hard that make my life harder, that inconvenience me and cause me discomfort. So let me ask you this question. If you never find church uncomfortable, 
Can you see how that might be a problem? Church is supposed to be uncomfortable sometimes because it's not about pleasing myself. And when we find ourselves frustrated and disappointed, which we undoubtedly will, you find yourself at the crossroads and you have a choice to make. But of course you might say, well, why would I choose to please them? Why would I choose to make my life harder? Well, Paul says in verse 3, we should do it because of Christ. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. You see, when Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, he faced the same crossroads that we face. Right at the start of his public ministry, he faced the temptation to make it all about his pleasure, about what pleased him. He was tempted to go for physical comfort and personal glory. But instead, he chose to turn and walk a different road. Rather than choose what was pleasing to the eye, instead he chose a road of mockery and suffering. Instead of choosing personal gain, he chose personal loss. And why would Jesus choose to go that way? Well, we might say, well, obviously he did it because of us. He loved us so much he wanted to die for us. Actually, that's not what Paul says. In order to explain why Jesus chose to walk that road, he quotes Psalm 69. This is the first of the Old Testament quotes. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It's verse 3. Well, why does he quote that? What a weird thing to say. Why not just say because Jesus loved people and wanted to help them? Instead, he quotes this psalm. Well, he quotes the psalm because in Psalm 69, it's talking about the desperate need that the people have of a king who will be so passionate for God's honor that he will be willing to be insulted and disgraced for the sake of God. What the people need is a king who is consumed by a zeal for God's honor rather than for himself, even to the point of suffering disgrace at the hands of God's enemies. And so Paul quotes Psalm 69 and says, Jesus is that king that we need. He's the one who bore the insults of God's enemies. And as he was spat on and mocked and ridiculed, he chose that path to be the king we need. And you know, Jesus chose that road again and again through his life. He got to the crossroads and he says, I choose personal loss rather than personal gain. It's the big storyline of the Bible. We have to see where Jesus fits in. And you've got to see what Paul is doing here. Paul is lining up our suffering within the church, our um, struggle within the church. He lines that up with the suffering of Jesus at the cross. That's extraordinary. And so you find yourself irritated by someone in church, someone who's failed you or wronged you or disappointed you. And that happens, right? We've all been there. And you get to that crossroads and you discover you're standing at the crossroads where Jesus has stood before you. He's already been to that crossroads. And he chose to walk the path of suffering because he loved his father for the glory of God and for us. So do you choose physical comfort and personal glory, or do you choose the painful road that Jesus walked? Now, of course, you're going to say to me, this is hard. 
course it's hard. And if we're going to be a church who really lived this out, we're going to need a whole heap of endurance and encouragement. Well, that's good because God's given us a book full of it. That's what verse 4 says. You see, Paul knows what we need. He knows that we're going to struggle. So he says, look, you've got what you need. Verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. How can we possibly do this? How could we possibly live this way and choose the road of suffering? Well, because God's given us his word and his word tells us what we need to know. The Bible is God's word to us to encourage us and to give us endurance. This is why as a church we're so passionate about the word of God. This is why we preach this word, because if we don't listen to this word, we will never choose to walk the road of suffering. But this word of God is living, and God speaks to us. It's written to teach us. It's not just some old history book. It's the living word of God that is the means by which we will have the endurance and encouragement to choose the path of suffering. And not only do we have the word of God, we then discover that it is God himself who gives endurance and encouragement, verse 5. And so you pray, you read the Bible, and you pray that God would give you that endurance and encouragement so that we might choose the same way that Jesus chose, that we might choose to walk the road of suffering, that we might choose to bear with one another rather than fall out with one another, all so that we would be the people who with one voice are united in praising God. You see how it works? The vision for the church is that we would be united in praise and that means we need God's endurance and encouragement that we find in the Bible in order that we might bear with one another. Do you know, our world craves unity. Our world craves a place where we could all just get on with each other. Why do there have to be so many divisions and struggles? And we get so frustrated with each other because we're trying to be united but we can't do it. And then we look at people on Bournemouth Beach leaving piles of rubbish and we think, you're so selfish. How can you be so selfish? And social media is full of people ranting about one another. The church is supposed to be different because we are united not by a common love of things but by a common worship of God. And it's only when we see him that we will truly be united in praise. We've got to be a church who speak with one voice. From all our different backgrounds, not, some, not splitting up into sweet and salty, but being one voice declaring the praise of him who saved us. That's what God, God's vision for the church, united in praise. Is that what the world sees as they look at us? Do they see a people who are united, who bear with one another, who love each other? And then secondly, Paul moves on in his argument to this second idea of overflowing hope. So let's follow through now from verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And Paul is now going to argue that we're to be a church who are overflowing with hope because again, it's Christ, it's all about him because Jesus is the one who brings God's promises to fulfillment. So when someone makes you a promise, it invites you to hope for fulfillment. 
So you buy something on Amazon, and then you wait for the fulfilment of that promise. You hope for delivery. And the quality of the promise will determine the quantity of hope that you have. So if you have a very high view of Amazon, then you will have a lot of hope in delivery. If you're very cynical about Amazon, then you'll have a very low view, a low hope. The quality of the promise determines the quantity of hope. And what Paul is now going to argue is that the quality of God's promise is of such inestimable value that our quantity of hope should be overflowing in the Spirit. So look at how he argues it. God has made great promises. Verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. God has made promises to the Jewish nation, to the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the kind of big daddies of Judaism from right back at the start. And God promised that they would be his people and that he would love them and that he would protect them and that he would be their God. He made those promises to the Jewish nation. And the question comes, well, is he going to fulfill those promises? Is that true? Is that real? And then Jesus comes to fulfill that promise. Jesus comes to confirm it. Jesus comes to say, yeah, all of those promises that God made to Abraham, they're all fulfilled in Christ. It is through Jesus that God's people are gathered in. It's through Jesus that all those promises are fulfilled. So the quality of God's promise is perfect. But more than just the Jews. Look at verse 9. Moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, God's promise was bigger than just for the Jews. It always included the Gentiles too. And Jesus guarantees that promise as well. And that's where you get this string of quotes from the Old Testament about God's purpose for the Gentiles. So verse 9, Therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles. I'll sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that the peoples extol him. Verse 12, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. So God made these promises to the Jews, but he also said that the Gentiles would be part of that too. And this last one, this quote from Isaiah, talks of the root of Jesse. Jesse was... David's father. And from Jesse came King David. And from King David came the line that led to Jesus. And Jesus is from the root of Jesse. And Jesus has sprung up. And the point of Jesus coming was that all the nations, all the Gentiles might put their hope in him. And so all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. The church is part of that plan and it rests on the promises fulfilled in Jesus. And we now have that hope, that quality of promise. And that hope is the hope that now should overflow in us. And so Paul prays. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The people of God are to be a people who are overflowing with hope because of the sheer quality of God's promises.
you can trust him. And in a world where so much is uncertain, in a world where people don't know what's happening and don't know what the future looks like, we're to be a people who shine with hope because we know God. We have hope for the future. We have hope about our security. We have hope about where our world is heading. We have hope of the day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We have hope that God's plan will be fulfilled. And we overflow with hope. Now I wonder how much hope marks us out. Or whether we give way to cynicism and doubt. And what do we do when we find that we're not full of hope? Well, I think verse 13 says we pray. We ask that the God of hope would fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is not something that you generate within yourself. Hope is something that God gives by the power of his Spirit, so ask him for it. This is how we stand out in the world today. This is what we're supposed to be about as a church. This is the message we have for our world. Unified in praise, overflowing with hope, because God is great. Our Father, please, may we be a people who are united in praise. And please, might we be a people who are overflowing with hope. In Jesus' name.